Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 83, Joseph Cadane, Certainty and Uncertainty in Reporting Fingerprint Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Jay Kadane. Jay is the Leonard Savage University Professor of Statistics Emeritus at Carnegie Mellon University and has been a well-known contributor to the area of law and statistics for many decades. Our podcast today features Jay's new article, Certainty and Uncertainty in Reporting Fingerprint Evidence, which was co-authored with Jay Kohler and published in Daedalus, the Journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In it, Jay discusses a recent vignette study on the presentation of fingerprint evidence. It's now been firmly established that the traditional ways in which fingerprint examiners have presented their findings have no scientific basis. For example, examiners in the past declared matches claiming zero probability of error, something that we now know is obviously untrue. But having revealed what is the wrong way to present fingerprint evidence, the question becomes, what is the right way? And one step in establishing best practices for the future is to figure out how would-be jurors react to different methods of presentation. Jay's article does just that, and looks at the effectiveness of cross-examination and the importance of juror attitudes along the way. Jay, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. I think it's fair to say that you are first and foremost a statistician, but Over the years, you've also written extensively and made a lot of contributions in the legal space as well. To start us off, can you tell us a little more about how you got involved in legal issues and what that has been like? Well, I guess I don't see a a sharp distinction between statistics and legal applications. So I would code what I do as a statistician, and when I work in legal things, That's one of the applications that I'm interested in. How did I get started? Well, first of all, I suppose my father was an attorney, and so I was cross-examined over the dining room table for many years before I knew (laughs) the term. But later, I got actually involved because Phoebe Ellsworth came to Carnegie Mellon and gave a talk and explained maybe afterwards that the attorney that she had been working with, Sam Gross, they were now a couple. And as a result, she could no longer be an expert witness in the case that he was working on, which had to do with the death penalty and death qualification of jurors. And she asked me whether I would be interested in becoming an expert for that case. And I agreed to do it. I did some uh, data analysis on it. And then I spent a week at their house being prepared to do uh, this testimony. And that was the first testimony that I did. 
and that was a good long time ago, maybe 30 years ago or so. And since then, I have been from time to time doing work as an expert witness, but also doing scholarly work on various issues concerning the law. It's a funny thing. Among the statisticians I know that do expert work, there are really two types. They're the kind that do it once and say they never, ever will do it again. And then there are the others that, I guess like you, end up being sucked into the legal system and find it very rewarding and, and challenging. So the uh, focus of your paper with Jay Kohler is the presentation of fingerprint evidence at trial. Can you set the groundwork for the paper? What was the essential problem that you and Jay set out to address? Well, fingerprints are a controversial area in that much of the testimony that's given is ipse dixit testimony. That is, the fingerprint analyst will testify that they identify the latent fingerprint as having come from one particular defendant. And often they are not forthcoming about what makes them think so. There have been various attempts at reform of fingerprint evidence, starting, I suppose, with the shadows of the old FBI propaganda that said that fingerprint evidence is infallible. Well, nothing human is infallible. So what we were attempting to do with Jay, it's odd that we were both, I'm Joseph and he's Jonathan, but we're both called Jay. And so there are just two Jays involved here. What we set out to do was to see whether pseudo-jurors, that is essentially people who answer a questionnaire on the net from a pool of people who get paid to do that, distinguish between different ways of, of presenting fingerprint evidence. And basically what we found, we also were trying to find out whether, whether cross-examination changes the import of fingerprint evidence to these pseudo-jurors. And what we found was, first of all, the cross-examination, at least the cross-examination that we wrote, did not affect things at all. And secondly, that how fingerprint evidence was presented really didn't matter unless one went to, this person is not excluded, which is a very weak statement, of course, because an ink blot doesn't exclude anybody's fingerprint. So in the study, you actually propose six variations on the way you present the evidence. Can you tell us about why you chose those six variations? Some of those variations are now used in court. Some of them are not. Some of them are reforms that have been proposed by the Department of Justice. For example, they now say that you can't use the phrase to, to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, and you can't say to the exclusion of all other possible sources in the world. When I say you can't, what I mean is that persons 
who are in the pay of the Department of Justice can't do that. What state and local courts allow is a whole other matter. But as policy from the Department of Justice, they want those two phrases excluded. But what we find is that it doesn't matter at all um, in terms of how people perceive the strength of evidence. So that's a reform that looks like a reform, but that has no effect uh, on how people receive fingerprint evidence. And just to clarify, so what you found was even though you had six different variations, really the only difference was the very conservative, well, we can't exclude the defendant from the possible pool of suspects. That made a difference. But pretty much any conclusion that identified the defendant as the source or as individualizing to the defendant had effectively the same effect in that zone. Pretty much that's the case, yes. The other outcome that you were discussing was that you did not find any effect for cross-examination. And perhaps a cynic might say that that was expected, but to me that seems a staggering result. Basically what you found was if the damage is done, there's not a whole lot that the defense can do to reverse it with the use of cross-examination. That seems to be the case. And in fact, there's evidence that I've found since uh, that basically as soon as jurors hear the word fingerprint, they know what they think. And the verbiage that goes with it just doesn't matter. So the level of certainty doesn't seem to make a difference either, right? So that whether the expert puffs up the conclusion doesn't change the jury's mind. On that score, on one hand, it seems to be a good thing. Basically, the jurors are not snowed over by expert bloviating. But on the other side, it would seem that the jurors are making something of a binary decision on the evidence. Either the defendant was there or was the source or not. Should that be a matter of concern going forward? Oh, absolutely. In that jurors seem to believe the fingerprint evidence as being correct, regardless of what words go with it. So it's not that the bloviating adds anything to it. There was nothing to be added. The main difference you found was between language suggesting that the expert could not exclude the defendant and language saying that the defendant was the source. It seems to me that there might be two things going on in that distinction. One is about framing And here the distinction is about the inability to exonerate versus the ability to inculpate. So in some sense, it's a negative versus positive conclusion. And the other is something about individualization. When you say that the defendant is the source, you are saying that it is only the defendant, as opposed to saying that the defendant could be a source, meaning that the defendant could be a group. Now, logically, I think, Those two distinctions are the same. One implies the other. But, of course, your study is about presentation and how that affects jury psychology. Do you think one distinction here is doing more work than the other? Yes. I think that the fundamental issue is how many other people other than the defendant could have left the mark in question. And that goes to how strong the evidence is. And so it's really 
moving from being virtually certain that this is a fingerprint left by the defendant to recognizing that there are other possibilities that are unrecognized in that verbal formulation. If the language were, and this is often commonly done, that the fingerprint at the crime scene is consistent with the defendant's fingers, would that be more like the language in your study that you are unable to, or the expert is unable to exclude the defendant? Or is that more like the expert language saying that the defendant is the source of the print? I think that logically it means the former, but psychologically and to jurors it means the latter. Ah, interesting. Okay. So it is really about what they perceive to be the individualization outcome. That's right. One other result, which I thought was very interesting in your study, was that you showed a rather strong linear relationship between juror perception of the strength of the evidence and how concerned they were with either convicting the guilty or protecting defendant rights, and in a sense, their propensity to convict. Uh, I found that result rather ironic, that in some sense, you and Jay spent all this time trying to adjust the actual strength of the evidence, or at least the actual strength of the presentation of the evidence, and instead the perceived strength by the jurors had more to do with their prior ideas about the criminal justice system than the actual evidence. Yes, that is what we found. That seems awfully troubling, that it's almost as if the strength of the evidence doesn't matter. Your pool in choosing the jury from the get-go becomes the most important part or the most important predictor of what happens at trial. Yes, there's an important thought that goes as follows. We do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. And what that means in this instance is that what the jurors walk into court thinking and believing may well be more important than what they hear in court, which is not what lawyers want to think about, but it seems to be that way. Yeah, it's a uh, sobering conclusion, I think. So given all the findings in your study, what do you think the implications are for reform efforts? Well, there are two kinds of reform efforts, I guess, that come to my mind. One is a massive education job that fingerprint analysis is not cut and dried, is not for sure. Mistakes get made. Often latent fingerprints are partial and or smudged, etc. The second is that I believe that a much better job could be done in explaining the uncertainty involved in fingerprints as a routine matter. That would require a huge effort that would mean getting into the FBI's over a million person or a hundred million person database of people's fingerprints and using a different kind of program than what they now use on that database. So that would be a very big job, but I think it could be done, and I think it could give a much more accurate idea of 
what the real import of the fingerprint data is. But how does this square with the findings of your study? Surely we would want to know about that as designers or reformers of the system, but it doesn't seem that jurors would necessarily process that information the way you wanted if what they're doing is making this binary decision, that creates problems. It's not clear that they're going to take those population statistics and use them in the way that we want. And it also doesn't seem that providing the defense counsel with this information would be helpful either because the cross-examination seemed ineffective. So is the reason for the education effort to basically boost Daubert so that judges can do the screening in this context? No, I don't think so, because the evidence that I have says that jurors come in as a general rule, utterly convinced in the accuracy of fingerprint analysis, and nothing that the judge says is going to do anything about that, and nothing that voir dire and peremptory challenges is going to do anything about that. That is just what people think, and they think it because for a good 50 years, that was drummed into their heads by the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. That was one of his main things, was uh, that the FBI is scientific, and what scientific meant was we do fingerprints, and fingerprints are infallible. Final question for you. What's next? What kind of new projects are you working on, either in the forensics area or elsewhere? Ah, many things, but in my head, I'm pursuing the possibility of reforming the system and realizing what an awful job that's going to be to try to get done. It, it will require the cooperation of, a, of an enormous number of players. And um, so I'm, I'm thinking about whether that's feasible to do. I think technically, I think I see a way through it. Whether the legal system, the social system, the built-in conservative impulse of the fingerprint analyst community, those are all obstacles in the way. Well, Jay, thanks for taking the time to talk about your recent study on the presentation of fingerprint evidence. Great having you on the show. Thank you for having me. At the end of October, I had the chance to observe the legendary advisory committee for the Federal Rules of Evidence when it visited Vanderbilt for its semi-annual meeting. One of the amendments they debated was to change the Daubert admissibility standard under Rule 702 to include a provision prohibiting overclaiming. I have to admit that I've been skeptical of this amendment. For one thing, I'm not sure that it differs much from how Daubert already works in practice. For another, I'm not convinced that overclaiming can't be dealt with using cross-examination. Jay's article, though, casts some new light on this overclaiming amendment, but the implications seem to cut in both directions. On the one hand, the article, in line with some earlier research, suggests that cross-examination may not be an effective cure for overclaiming, necessitating the change to the admissibility standard. The study also suggests that jurors find language suggesting individualization 
or match irresistible, further suggesting that it should be an admissibility requirement. On the other hand, the article suggests that jurors are unaffected by expert attempts at puffery. So, saying match to the exclusion of all possible sources in the world doesn't get you much more than simply saying match, which therefore suggests that overclaiming is not a problem. So, in the end, I guess the desirability of an overclaiming amendment depends on the details of how it's implemented. If judges use it merely to police puffery, it will accomplish nothing. On the other hand, if judges interpret it to signal a strong presumption against individualization or language suggesting a match, then it could be an important step in reform. That leads me to a final point, on which I think Jay and I disagree. It seems to me that his study strongly suggests the need for judicial gatekeeping, or alternatively, the heavy-handed use of presumptions. For whatever reason, it seems that laypersons simply do not handle probabilistic evidence in a nuanced way. They essentially treat it as one binary and two infallible. If that's true, then the answer is not more education, but rather bright-line cutoffs. You admit the evidence, or assume individualization, when the probability is sufficient for the legal system to run the risk of being wrong. You exclude the evidence, or assume no individualization, when it is insufficient to run the risk of being wrong. So perhaps the answer is not giving fact-finders more information that they will not and cannot effectively use anyway, but rather using a strong hand to help them reach what is likely to be the correct conclusion. Controversial? For sure. But hopefully food for thought. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>